We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ's likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Uh, that might help them advance their career. Uh, and, and we usually think that eavesdropping will do just that. We think it'll give us some advantage, some nugget of truth that will help us live a more comfortable and successful life. And now, most of the time, eavesdropping is wrong, it's usually sinful, and it usually doesn't deliver. It usually doesn't do what we expect it to. It usually doesn't advance our careers or advance our well-being or make us any more comfortable or satisfied. It just makes us kind of mean and judgmental most of the time. But over the next few weeks on Wednesday night, we're actually going to be doing some, some eavesdropping that's been sanctioned by the Lord as we study the book of Philemon together. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the smallest book in the New Testament, just 21 verses, the book of Philemon. Feel free to use the table of contents if you need to. Uh, if you go to Hebrews, you've gone too far. Uh, it's right before Hebrews. Uh, so, uh, the book of, I, I say that the book of Philemon is like some divinely sanctioned eavesdropping because it's one of the few private letters that we have preserved for us in the New Testament. It was written from one individual to another small group of individuals. The Apostle Paul to a man in the city of Colossae whose name was Philemon. And we're going to learn more about Philemon and why Paul is writing this letter to him, And as we study this letter, as we eavesdrop, we will find that unlike eavesdropping at work or at the mall, eavesdropping on Paul's conversation with Philemon actually will transform and improve our lives as it teaches us some profound truths about God and about his family, the church. So, what I want to do tonight is I want to just introduce us to this book. We're going to look at the first three verses of the book together. Uh, but before we do that, um, no, no, these, these first three verses, sorry, let me clarify that. These first three verses, I think, contain two key truths that I think are the predominant themes of the entire book. So I think if we understand these three verses and these two themes from those verses, the rest of Philemon is going to come a whole lot easier to us. Now, before we dive into those theological themes of the book of Philemon and start talking about that kind of background, I want to make sure that we take time to understand the historical background of Philemon. Because Philemon actually has an incredibly dramatic and interesting story that lays behind it that a lot of people have taken a lot of time to study so that we can get to know this history and this backstory. Uh, and so to help people understand the backstory of Philemon, I actually made a video about it when I was in high school. Uh, so if you want to know what I was like in high school, you're about to find out because I'm going to show you this video that I made to help people understand the historical background of the book of Philemon. So there's this guy named the Apostle Paul. And Paul loves Jesus and preaches the gospel around the world, including in the city of Ephesus, where this other guy, Philemon, meets Jesus, is saved, and becomes a Christian. 
Philemon goes back to his hometown, a city called Colossae, and becomes a leader in the local church there. Philemon has a really big house because he's a wealthy business owner, and he allows the church to use his home for church services. About ten years later, one of Philemon's slaves, Onesimus, steals money and runs away to Rome. While in Rome, the runaway slave meets the same Apostle Paul that his master had heard a decade earlier. And just like his master, Onesimus becomes a Christian after hearing Paul preach the gospel. Once Paul realizes that Onesimus is a runaway slave, he sends Onesimus home to Philemon with a letter he's written to Philemon, his family, and his church, explaining that Onesimus had become a Christian and should be forgiven for running away and stealing. Paul gives Philemon the opportunity to forgive Onesimus and receive his runaway slave as a brother in faith, and the church around them gets an opportunity to see what forgiveness really looks like. The letter that Paul wrote is the book of Philemon. Awesome. So hopefully that helps us as we study the book of Philemon together. Uh, and if you're still a little confused because there were a lot of different characters uh, that lay behind this book, that's okay. We're going to meet them together as we walk through it. Um, so that's the historical background uh, that, that empowers this book. It's a book about community and about reconciliation, but ultimately it's a book about God. And so that's what I want to show us tonight. Again, I just want to show you two key themes that are introduced in the first three verses of the book and will, will permeate throughout the book. So that first theme is that Jesus controls the universe. Jesus controls the universe. Jesus is in control of everything. There is nothing that falls outside of his command. So, so read with me the first verse of the letter to Philemon. Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So that's the, that's the from portion of the letter. He's saying, hi, my name is Paul. Who am I? I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, when, when you first look at this phrase, if you were to know the Apostle Paul, that phrase would, would seem interesting and, and a little bit odd to you at first because Paul wasn't necessarily a prisoner of of Jesus. He was a prisoner of the Roman Empire. If you study the book of Acts, you know a large portion of that book and a large portion of Paul's life was him being thrown around the empire in imprisonment of the Roman Empire. And so he was not, as far as the eyes could see, he was not a prisoner of Jesus. He was a prisoner of Caesar. And so why does Paul here say that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus? As he's being thrown around the empires, he's facing terrible imprisonments and comfortable house arrests, facing a variety of, uh, of situations. How does he say, suffering all that at the hands of the emperor, how does he say that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus? I think the reason he says that is because Paul knows that Jesus is in control of the entire universe. Paul was not in prison as an accident. Paul was in prison by the plan of God. Jesus ordered the circumstances that led to Paul's 
imprisonment. Jesus ordered the circumstances that, that allowed Paul to be moved from place to place while in prison. Jesus ordered every circumstance in Paul's life, including his imprisonment, so that ultimately we can say Caesar is not king. Jesus is king. Jesus is in control of the entire universe. If it gets warm again in the next few weeks or cold again in the next few weeks, that is not because of the weatherman. That is because of the Lord Jesus commanded it to be so. And, and whoever wins the next presidential election, although while our votes are important, we know that Jesus has already determined who wins. And when the waves crash against the beach, they do so at the command of King Jesus. And when rain falls on your house, it does so at the permission of King Jesus, who, who walked on water, who calmed storms with a word. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He controls everything in the universe. And now we often think about this lordship of Jesus or this commanding of Jesus. We think of it in really abstract ways. Like we just said, well, you know, Jesus, he commands the waves and the snow and the weather. And those are all true and those are all important and those are all good. But the fact that Jesus is Lord doesn't just mean that he has an abstract control over nature. It means that he has a direct authority over all of our lives. To be a Lord means to be a master, an owner. And so Jesus controls everything in the universe, and he lays claim to every second of your life. So when Paul says that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus, he's saying, even though it looks like Caesar put these chains on me, I know that Jesus allowed him to. And even though it looks like Caesar controls my life and gets to determine where I live, Jesus determines how I live. The Apostle Paul knew that King Jesus never offers suggestions. He only offers commands. And the backstory of Philemon, which we just showed, I think illustrates this same thing. Just think about how crazy it would be that that one man, a business owner who lives cities away, would hear an evangelist, become a Christian, return to his city, and start to help and serve in the church there. And then 10 years later, one of his employees runs away and in a totally different city meets the same evangelist, hears the same gospel, and is guided through this process of reconciliation. That's astounding. That doesn't happen on accident. That happens because Jesus is in control of the universe. Jesus is in control of the universe. So your life, church, is not your own. You don't get to determine what you do or how you live. Because Jesus demands every inch of your life. And he has the right to do that. He's not presumptuous, claiming an authority that he doesn't deserve. He created you. He owns you. We're his. And so with every 
action that we do, every word that we speak, every thought that we think, we're either submitting to King Jesus or we're rebelling against him. Your life is not your own. The big decisions in your life, where to live, whether to buy a house or, or sell your house or rent or what city to live in, those are not your decisions to make. And we ought to think primarily not what's best for me, but what will be most glorifying to King Jesus? What will give me the most unique opportunities to share Christ with people that may never hear of him otherwise? The way that you spend your money does not primarily end on you and what you want and what you desire. The way that you spend and give your money belongs to King Jesus. And your checkbook or your bank account will either show that Jesus is your king or that he is not. And so we ought to value more than anything what God values with our money. And while it's not bad to buy good things and receive those things with thankfulness to God, we ought to be generous, radically and dangerously generous. Why? Because our life is not our own. Our money is not our own. It belongs to King Jesus. There is not a second in your life, a breath from your lungs, or a penny in your bank account that doesn't belong to King Jesus. One theologian put it this way. He said, there is not one square inch in the entire universe over which Jesus does not cry, mine. It's mine. Jesus controls the universe, and he has the right to do that. So that's the first key theme in Philemon. Jesus controls the universe. And number two, Jesus gathers his people into the church. Jesus gathers his people into the church. Jesus owns and commands the entire world. Everyone in it is his. But he lays a special claim on a certain group of people, which he calls the church. So the church are those people that he has called out of the world to be a part of his family where God is the Father, and where we Christians are brothers and sisters with one another. And so verse 1 continues, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Athena, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got a lot of names there, don't we? We've got Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker. And, and if you didn't catch that from the video we watched, Philemon was a wealthy businessman who about 10 years prior to these events became a Christian uh, in the city of, uh, of Ephesus under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He returns to the city of Colossae. So the letter to the Colossians, which we also have in our New Testaments, uh, that, that was written to Philemon's church. And Philemon, we don't know exactly how he made his money, but he was likely a very successful and wealthy businessman. He had slaves, and we'll talk about that in a minute. That might uh, cause your ears to perk up when we talk about slavery in the Bible. Uh, but he had slaves, so he was probably very wealthy. And he also, you'll notice at the end of verse 2, he says, to the church that meets in your home. 
so, so Philemon's house was large enough that the local church could actually meet and gather there. In the first century, church buildings like this one weren't very common, but homes were. And so that's often where God's people would meet and gather together to, to fellowship with one another, to study God's word together, to pray together. They would do that in homes. And that required the generosity of people like Philemon, who knew that while they had a lot of gifts and a lot of money and a lot of blessing, that blessing came from God, and therefore it belonged to him. So Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, that, that's most likely Philemon's wife. We don't know for sure, but that seems to make the most sense. Uh, to Archippus, our fellow soldier. Uh, and if you're looking for boy baby names, I highly recommend that one. Archippus, our fellow soldier. Lydia's thankful that we're having a girl. Uh, but Archippus, our fellow soldier. Uh, that was likely another minister in the church at Colossae. Maybe it was Philemon's son, some people have suggested. Again, we don't know for sure. We know that he was a fellow soldier. He was a minister and a leader in the church at Colossae. And to the church that meets in your home. And so I, I made a joke earlier that we're eavesdropping in on Paul's conversation with Philemon. And while that is true, that was Paul's intention from the beginning. Paul's intention from the beginning was that this letter wouldn't just be a private correspondence from one person to another, uh, but that it would be a, a public letter because it doesn't just have information and commands for Philemon and Onesimus. It has a lot to say to the church throughout history about what the church is and about who God is. So, so before we press any further, let me just take a minute and talk about slavery. Uh, because if you didn't catch that in the video, uh, Onesimus, who's the, the subject of this letter, was a runaway slave. And so he's, he's fleeing his master, Philemon, and running away to the big city of Rome. And while he's in Rome, that's where he meets the Apostle Paul, hears the gospel, becomes a Christian, and he's thinking through, how do I live as a runaway slave that's now converted, that's now become a Christian? And the Apostle Paul sends him back to Onesimus, to his slave owner. Now, now in our own cultural context, that seems to set up all kinds of red flags. Uh, because we think about slavery as it took place in our own history in the American South. And I can tell you assuredly that slavery and its slavery in America and its ancestors that, that still exist today in racism and white supremacy and, and, and pejorative speech and stereotypes. Those things are wicked and evil. And, and we, we should, should never think about slavery without thinking about the 27 million people around the world today that still live in slavery in the sex trafficking industry, many of them coming from our own backyard. That is evil. That is wicked. And we can never be indifferent to that. I want to make that so abundantly clear. But, but often the New Testament will address issues of slavery. 
And it's not talking about that sort of institution. Slavery as it existed in the first century was, was by and large not race-based, so it wasn't based on any inferiority in other people. Uh, and, and it was often, uh, it could be a beneficial institution for a lot of people. It was an alternative to crushing under the weight of financial debt. And many slaves would buy their own freedom through their labor and through their pay, because many slaves were paid. Many slaves would earn their own freedom, and they would basically be learning a trade underneath their master so that they were better off financially than when they started. And so it's really less about slavery and more about being a servant or an employee. Uh, that's not a perfect analogy, but I think it's a little bit better than slave to our own cultural ears. And so as we read about slavery over the next few weeks, we need to have that important filter on. And whenever we find it in the Bible, I hope that's a, hope that's a tool for you. Now, now that's, that's beside the point more or less, because this is not a letter about slavery. It's a letter about God, and it's a letter about his church. And that's where I want to turn now, because in verse, the end of verse 1, he says something really interesting. He says that the letter is to the church that meets in your home. I mentioned earlier that there were some really practical reasons that churches had to meet in homes at the time of this letter. And still in many places around the world today, churches have to meet in homes. They don't have the luxury of church buildings. But beyond those practical reasons, I think the fact that the church meets in homes throughout the New Testament is telling. Because it shows us that the church is not an event, and it's not a building, and it's not a social club. It's not a weekly gathering. The church is a family. The church is a family where God is our Father. We are adopted in as brothers and sisters through the work of our big brother and our king, Jesus. And throughout the letter of Philemon, just for instance, I think seven times I counted, Six times, I'm sorry, six times in this short little letter, Paul uses family language, like brother or sister. Because the church is not an event or a club. The church is a family. When we call each other brothers and sisters not to be cute, but because it speaks to a deep reality where God is our Father and He has chosen to bind us together as a church. Next week, we're going to learn about what life in the church should look like as we talk about fellowship. And I'll give you a hint. I love eating dinner with all of you, but that's not what fellowship is. We're going to be talking about that more next week. And then in, in, in the coming weeks, in the end of the book of Philemon, we're going to talk about reconciliation and forgiveness. We're going to be talking about what happens when that community gets broken, when people sin against each other. But, but for now, what I just want you to see, and I want to challenge you to think about, the church is not a club. It is a family. Does your life reflect that? And we're not just brothers and sisters. That's not just a nickname that we give to each other. We're blood brothers and sisters. Amen. By the blood of Jesus Christ and by his resurrection, we are bound together as a church. 
This past week, we celebrated a new member. And that's not just someone who's checking an obligation and saying, all right, I'm a member of this church now. That's someone who is covenanting with us. That's someone who's making an agreement with us to do certain things, to live a certain way, to hold us accountable and have us do the same for her. We use language like covenant and membership because the church is a family, it's not a club. And what is the church? Is this just anybody that wants to? Is this just the people that come in and raise their hand and say, hi, I'm a member? The church, look at verse 3, the church is those who are marked by grace and peace. Verse 3 says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church is marked and formed and shaped by grace and peace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And so as a result of our sin, our rebellion against King Jesus, we deserve punishment. But God gives grace and mercy. Instead of giving us what we deserve, he makes us sons. We are his enemies, and he makes us his Children. He makes us his family. And peace. Peace as opposed to war. Because we're not God's enemies anymore. We're his family. That's why almost every letter in the New Testament starts with grace to you and peace. Because that's what shapes the local church. The local church is shaped by the grace of God and peace with God. Because of God's grace, because he's chosen to, to look upon us favorably and mercifully, we have peace. We are no longer at war. We are no longer his enemies. We are his friends. We are his family. And that means we're family with one another, too. So in your experience, is the local church more like an event or a club or is it a family? Do you prioritize relationships in your local church? If you have non-believing friends and family, your church ought to feel closer to you than those people. Even if that's your brother or sister or mother or father or, or son or daughter, you ought to feel closer to your church than you do to those people. Because you'll live with your church for eternity. And that's why we look outside the church and we call those unbelieving friends and family that we know. We call them to join us, to be marked and formed by God's grace and peace, to not be God's enemy, but to be his family. Do you have relationships in your local church with people that look differently than you do? Are there, are there people, are, do you have relationships in your church that wouldn't make sense at a social club? Are you friends with people that are older than you and younger than you? That are different socioeconomic statuses or races than you? Do you regularly serve other people from your local church? And when I say serve people, I don't mean serve at church, although that's great and we need people to serve at church. I mean, do you serve them? Do you care for them? Not on Sunday, but on Monday through Saturday. Because in case you haven't figured out, that's more of the week than Sunday. 
And families don't come together once a week and say, okay, is everybody still here? Nobody's dead? Okay, great. Families live together. Families live together. We understand one another's needs and we meet them. And so if, if someone is sick, then we care for them. We bring them meals. If someone is, is unable to take care of their house, then young men like me should go to their house and mow their lawn. When someone needs help moving, we need to help them move because they're family, and that's what family does. And I, I don't want us to just pat ourselves on the back and say, yeah, I think I do that pretty well. I think I serve other people. Because we're sinners, and King Jesus demands every area of our life. So I know that none of us are giving enough. We ought to be serving one another. Deeply and sacrificially. Do you show grace to other people in your local church? Like I said, uh, we're going to see in the rest of Philemon that fellowship and living in these close relationships with other people is difficult because people are messy and people are mean. And so relationships will often break and crumble. And that, that's hard. But it is worth it because we're family. And family sticks it out together. Is your church, is our church, more like a club or an event or a family to you? And I hope that you'll strive to make it more like your family. And now, you might not be in this family. It's not for everyone. Is Jesus your king? We've all disobeyed him. We've all stolen his kingship. We've all robbed him of what we owe him. As a result, we deserve to be punished as slaves and prisoners. And yet... Jesus has chosen us to be gods by grace and mercy. And that's astounding. Jesus laid his life down to purchase a people for God. Jesus died for the church. Jesus died so that you and I could be sons and daughters of God. Jesus died so that we could be a family. And we honor his cross and we honor his resurrection best when we thank him for that sacrifice and we thank him for that benefit of, of binding us together as a family. So you, is your church a family? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us about your church. We pray, Father, that you would just shape us and mold us to be a more pure and perfect church as a result of what we've heard in your word tonight. We pray that as we study Philemon, we would prioritize your word. We would prioritize your church. And that, that you would use this book, this overlooked book in our Bible, to teach us about your will for our life. I pray, Father, that you would make us a church that is marked by sacrifice for one another and generosity 
for your glory, so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would hear the name of your Son and would believe in Him. And it's for your name we pray. Amen.